This is the WTF Bach Podcast. Right, that fear goes This is a bonus episode. Bonus, bonus episode of the WTF Bach Podcast. WTF Bach here. Why is this a bonus episode? Well, why indeed? Because if you open any edition you have of the Art of Fugue, I assume you have several, you will see this work, Fugue 13, for two harpsichords. So the question we're asking here is why doesn't this fugue for two harpsichords belong in our normal discussions of the art of fugue? It sort of makes sense on the surface, right, that this double harpsichord work might be included in the art of fugue. Bach's late works, especially the art of fugue and a musical offering, are written seemingly for an unspecified group of instruments. The canons in a musical offering besides one, scored specifically for two violins in unison, they seem to be pieces that could be performed by any number of instruments, even just conceptual pieces. And without any specific instrumentation listed for the art of fugue, one might think that this arrangement for two harpsichords fits in with the scenario where Bach was just sort of writing abstract pieces for who knows how many players or for who knows what instrumentation. But the good listener, of course, to this podcast, knows by now that this is very much a myth. The art of fugue is very carefully crafted for a single harpsichord, and the arrangement of this 13th fugue, this bonus episode, covers, well, just that, an arrangement. And when we think about the instrumentation for this two harpsichord arrangement, it's smart to ask the question, could for two harpsichords mean for two harpsichords? You understand what I mean? Meaning the rest of the art of fugue is for one harpsichord, and this, Bach specifically writes on this fugue, now this is fugue 13, for two harpsichords. I believe all signs point to yes. So why then is the arrangement of this fugue included in the original edition of the Art of Fugue? Well, it has to do with the errors in the original edition. And we know that the family, confused and in a rush, made a number of errors when putting together the first edition after Bach was dead. Let me quote David Moroni in his program notes from a recital in 2013. He speaks of the family's error. They included two arrangements of the three-part mirror fugue, number 13, as reworked by Bach for two harpsichords in four parts, and they even managed to print them in the wrong order! Exclamation mark. These arrangements have no logical place in Bach's tightly constructed cycle of fugues. The error is understandable since the arrangements are based on the motto theme, that's the art of fugue theme, and therefore seem at first glance to be part of the collection. Bach made many such transcriptions during his lifetime. One movement for unaccompanied violin was transcribed for full orchestra, including organ, trumpets, drums, and the others were arranged for harpsichords. This does not mean that those transcriptions belong with the set of works for unaccompanied violin. In the case of the two arrangements of Fugue No. 13, both pieces make fine works for two harpsichords, but this does not alter the fact that the original three-part version makes a splendid pair of mirrored pieces also for solo harpsichord. It is the three-part version alone that belongs with the Art of Fugue cycle." End quote. Well, thank you for your work, Mr. Moroni. He's referencing the arrangement of the E major partita, which was transcribed at the beginning of a cantata. There's also, we, we, see this, uh, we see this a lot with Bach. He arranged the first movement of the C major unaccompanied violin sonata. He arranged the entire A minor violin sonata for harpsichord. We see him arranging his cello suites, the C minor cello suite for lute, harpsichord. Uh, so we see Bach doing this a lot. As far as this double harpsichord arrangement of Fugue 13 happened, how exactly could the family do that? What, why would they make that mistake? Well, where did they find the arrangement exactly? That's the question we have to go to. That's the question we have to ask. The sources. One always needs to go back and look at the source material when preparing to understand an edition. 
And speaking of an addition, I'd hate to break the hearts of all those who hold up the Ur-text, the Ur-text, the text from the land of Ur, as a biblical truth. Because an addition is just like an organism. It's living and it's constantly changing. Especially such technically proficient composers like Bach, Mozart, Chopin. There's no such thing as an Ur-text. Because the music is not set down in stone. At least not for these types of composers. This is not a record where once the record is mixed, it becomes the song. An addition, on the other hand, is a particular time in history when the organism was briefly captured but it goes on living after that and had life before that. And in this case, the source of this double harpsichord arrangement, we refer to this as part of the Beilage, which means the supplements, Beilagen, supplements, plural, right? See, I mentioned this before with the autograph edition. The early edition in Bach's handwriting is referred to as P200 in the business, but in addition to P200, when going to the source tradition, we find 10 loose sheets of paper also in Bach's handwriting, which contain three pieces that are not in P200. These three pieces are the last fugue, the so-called unfinished fugue, the last canon reworked into the version that appeared in the original print. I will speak at length about the last canon in the next episode. It's sort of the most fascinating one. But let's mention that in these Beilage, in these supplements, Bach has copied out the last canon from common time, that is 4-4, into cut time. That is a C with a slash through it in two beats, in other words, after doubling the note values. Okay, so what, what does that mean? Why would Bach do something like that? He does it a lot in revision. We find this in the well-tempered Quivir. We actually find this all over the place. He writes something in 4-4 time or common time. And when he revises it or gets it ready to be printed, he reprints it, he rewrites it with double the note value, but slashes the meter in half to preserve the tempo. And the resulting music is therefore theoretically the same, but the amount of measures or bars is suddenly doubled. So more on that in the next one, but the point is here, the Beilage as opposed to P200 seems to reflect because of this type of revision, a later stage of Bach's thoughts on the art of fugue. After Bach had finished the manuscript, the early version, this P200, always tinkering, always in search of perfection, he continued to work on a final quadruple fugue, he revised the final canon, and he made an arrangement of Fugue 13 for two harpsichords. And I do have to correct something that I said in the previous episodes. I said that Bach never used the term mirror fugue in the art of fugue. He rather called them simply rectus and inversus, and this is true, but here in the Beilage, in this arrangement of the two harpsichord fugue 13, Dreistimme Spiegelfüge für zwei Cembali, three-part mirror fugue for two harpsichords. So it's perhaps from this Beilage that we get the term mirror fugue. Very good. So this seems to be the gist of the origin of the fugue for two harpsichords. And if you do remember fugue 13, you recall since it is a mirror fugue, it can be played right side up and upside down, therefore yielding two different pieces of music. So when Bach arranged this same fugue, he of course made two arrangements. Let's go.
Okay, so we have noticed that this indeed is Fugue 13, arranged for two harpsichords. You hear this is more of a full piece of music because it has this fourth voice in it. Now you heard the harpsichord one part in your left speaker and the harpsichord two part in your right speaker, more or less. But I did something a bit uncharacteristic of me, which I suppose was to read the music literally and not how it would truly be executed to, I suppose, bring your attention to a peculiarity in the notation of this fugue, which has to deal with this figure here. See, he writes it in straight 16th notes, and it really should be executed like this. And interestingly enough, he does go between dotted 16ths and straight 16ths in this version for two harpsichords, and it's not exactly clear why he's doing that. It could just be an early draft of something, but I left it in this literal reading so that you could see when he indeed does dot the 16th note and when he just leaves them as straight 16th notes. Now, surely when he was going to copy this out into the revised form, he would have certainly had some consistency about it, but I thought that in this case, being an electronic composition, being this odd demonstration of computers playing this double harpsichord fugue, I suppose, leave it and see what it sounds like as if you were to read it literally off the page. Okay, let's hear the next fugue, the same fugue flipped upside down with again an additional fourth obligato voice. That is Fugue 13 in the arrangement for two harpsichords we heard both versions. Now, the astute listener is astutely asking, in order to make an arrangement for two keyboard instruments of a fugue in three voices, well, what are you going to do with the fourth hand, right? Because now all of a sudden you've taken three voices and you've spread them over four hands. Now, I noted that there must be a fourth obligato voice added, and indeed, Bach does just that. But will this fourth additional voice that Bach adds be able to be played in the mirror? 
The answer is no. Bach has composed this unique additional voice for each fugue. And furthermore, the additional voice is not fugal. In other words, it doesn't come in imitative counterpoint. It rather just comes along to sort of beef up the texture like a walking bass line. Now let me illustrate something exciting here. In the first fugue that we heard, which is the arrangement of the rectus version, the fourth accompanimental voice, that newly composed voice, comes as the left hand of the first harpsichordist's part. So if you know this fugue already, you only need to play the soprano voice in your right hand and learn the newly composed voice in your left hand. If you are on the second harpsichord part, you only need to play the alto and the bass voices of this fugue. And that is it. Now what I really like about the second fugue that we heard, which is the inversus version, is that the newly composed voice sort of comes on the bottom and on the top of the of what is a middle voice. And so uh, I'm just going to isolate this second harpsichord part for the inversus fugue, and I'm going to sort of speak over it, because you could hear that this is all of a sudden like a really new and quite intricate composition. Okay, so here we hear the middle voice in the right hand and the newly composed voice in the left hand. And it will stay like this for some time. Now here, right here, the voice is resting and what you're hearing now are two newly composed voices. And then the left hand takes over the middle voice, and now the newly composed voice is on top. Listen to this. All this stuff, ba -da 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 -dum, ba -da 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 -da, that has no place in any of the 13th fugue in the version for one harpsichord. Let's continue. Now it switches here, and we're back to having the original voice on the bottom now, and the middle voice is in the right hand. You can hear it sort of accompanying everything like a walking bass line, like I said. And that, that ba da 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 that's completely newly composed. Let's, let's hear it again. Now we've switched again. The newly composed voice is on top. And switched again there. And now it's, it's just switching all over the place, really. Switching there, switching there, right, switching like every two bars now. And there's the fermata. And I don't think there will be any more switches. It ends where it began the bottom. There is only one further mystery to add to this wild Beilage, which is the version in two harpsichords, and that is the term that appears only at the top of the original edition, in the original print, and those are the Latin words alio modo, alio modo. It says contrapuntus 13, alio modo, 
It means the 13th counterpoint in another way. It's Latin for in another way. And it is a mystery. Is this Bach who added this in another way? Uh, is that Bach the Latin teacher? We may never know. I mean, it could be his family saying Bach was naming these things in Latin. And so we need to put this 13th counterpoint again in this fugue. And so let's say that here it is in another way. It seems like he was renaming things in Latin from the P200 source, from the autograph source. So maybe he wanted to also rename this one in Latin. And I don't know, maybe this is the family's tribute to his Latin teaching career. I'm getting way too hypothetical to make any of you Bach scholars out there listening comfortable. So let's finally hear this piece actually for two harpsichords. Okay, here's the inversus version.
Excellent. That was Ton Koopman and his wife, Tini Matto. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Actually, I could say Tini Matto and her husband, Ton Koopman. They are playing, of course, on two harpsichords. And did you notice? Did you know what? They did not swing it. I didn't even know when I sat down to play that recording. But look at that. I am vindicated in my experimental electronic composition. Don't you love it when you're when you're vindicated? And I, I love this composition. I love I absolutely adore this composition because really, even though it's the same composition, it sounds so completely different, that use of that fourth voice that just brings everything onto a different level. And there are a couple times when he adds these seventh chords, which would be absent uh, were it not for that fourth voice. So Thank you for listening to this bonus episode, and the next episode is on to the final canon, a canon which is in contrary motion and in augmentation. Try and augment your brain around that before the episode, and then, yeah, the 14th contrapuntist, the last one, the last fugue in the Art of Fugue, the famous one, the one that apparently everyone thought for hundreds of years that Bach had just breathed his last while scrawling his name as he was hurled into eternity with his pen. Yep, thank you very much for listening. Join me on Patreon. Come on, Patreon doing incredible things on Patreon. Get with it. 